What's up, everybody? Nate Lurie back with more of We're the Inspiration. With some dark humor and brutal honesty, we're exploring the absurdity and the normalcy of living with disabilities. Stories are told on this show, and everyone's is different. One by one, we're going to tell as many as we can, while bringing you the most entertaining podcast about disabilities you'll ever hear. Now, we keep doing different things on this show. This time, I have with me a whole family. Mark Friedrich, who I used to coach in wheelchair basketball, and his parents, Ron and George Ann. Thank you for being the inspiration for this week's show. Thanks for having us. How you guys doing? We're doing great. Well, look at Mark taking charge. <laughs> <laughs> he usually does. That's well, fine. <laughs> knowing him the way I do, that makes sense. We are well. Thank you for inviting us. Well, it's no problem. I like to have the people that I know on first, not only does that give me practice in hosting, but I found out new things about the people I already knew. For example, and I don't want to make this heavy on the disability like I told you before, but Mark sent to me something that he wrote about himself. And I learned a lot of new things about him. One of the things that stuck out to me about his disability that is kind of unique, even though we both have spina bifida. Mark, you have trouble eating sometimes. I do. There were a couple of times where back in Texas, I went to the hospital and they did some swallow studies and they found that I could not eat properly or eat or drink properly. And sometimes if there's like, something that's like rubbing against my face or something like that, I start to gag. And it really, it had been an issue for me for some time. All your life. All my life, actually. Yeah. That's what it sounded like when I read what Mark gave me. But have you noticed that it's certain foods that you can't eat or? What do you live on? I mostly live on a couple of nutrition things uh, called Boost and Ensure. Mark describes some of his, his difficulties swallowing two issues. One is oral coordination, that foods of certain textures, uh, you can't manipulate well in his mouth and he'll choke on it, cannot chew well, chew meats and the like. And so if something is like a cracker, uh, he'll do that or soup. That's one issue is this oral coordination, oral hypersensitivity, which he described. But also the swallow study he just described is that when he would swallow, uh, food would go down his airways rather than down to his stomach. And so at a young age, he was fitted with a feeding tube, a gastrostomy tube, yeah. and survived on that all through his childhood. Then when we moved to Maryland, he was being hospitalized and he decided to do the study again, and it looked like things were going a whole lot better. So now he's able to take his food orally. We still have the G-tube in place for, for emergencies. But there were days early on when we'd gather around the dinner table, and Mark had his place, a funnel with a shutoff valve that I got from the auto parts store, hooked it up to some plumbing, and he would open the can, pour his drink, plug it in, and he could carry on a full conversation monopolize the whole hour because he had nothing in his mouth. <laughs> uh, so that's just sort of one of the side issues that we deal with. 
related to somewhat the cranial issues that some folks with spina bifida have. Now, it's interesting, Nate. I was in the hospital and there was a commercial on TV and it showed like insure and boost. And I was like, I can do that. I can do that. Well, and what caught your attention, Mark, was you already drinking those on your YouTube. Yeah, but, you, was, you were putting it in the G-tube. Yeah, but, but what but attracted what attracted your attention is now they were serving this drink in sports bottles. Yeah, that's the thing. And uh, <laughs> so, oh, I'll try that. So, well, the doctor says, let's test you first. And they said, this looks good. So give it a crack. And yeah. you've been doing it ever since. And then I moved on from foods and like tacos and like soups and things like that. Really did get into pizza, but that did bad things to no, us, so I mean, we're off I, pizza now. There was one instance where I was, my family and I were in Michigan visiting my grandfather, and I had a pizza pizza. And Not just one pizza pizza, Mark. No. no <laughs> that was the problem. You, you, you picked out on it. I picked out on it. That night, hospital, I went. Yeah, Mark has a history, besides having those oral coordination problems, Mark has a history of bowel obstructions. He has had... 20 bowel obstructions yeah. during his teen, teenage years. He was Oof. hospitalized for every one of them. And he was in intensive care a number of times with them and had about five or six surgeries related to him. So it was very, very serious. He's got a lost a third of his colon due to the problems. But he hasn't had one since he's 31. I, he hasn't had one since he was 21. The last time that I have been to the Hospital for any major stuff was in 2011. That was 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah, that was about 10 years ago. And I didn't remember that you were only 10 years younger than me. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably more medical history than you want to know, but it's been a big part of his life. You know, we try not to go too heavy on the medical because, well, for two reasons. One, that side of it already gets covered a lot by other shows, I think. And two, we want to keep things light on this show. But, right. So let's move past that. <laughs> yeah. Now, you guys mentioned, I think all of you mentioned, you used to live in Texas. And Mark, I noticed in what you sent to me that you used to do a lot of activities, I think, when you lived in Texas. I had done when I was a kid as well. Like, I had talked... I think when Todd was on the show about the fact that I did like one season of horseback riding, that's one of the things that you wrote about. Yes, I did. There were two things about that. I was in a horseback riding program for people with disabilities called Equest. And I had done that for, gosh, two or three years. And then there was a camp that I went to in Texas. And one of the activities that they had was horseback riding. And so I did that while I was at camp. Unfortunately, I am no longer able to do horseback riding because I have rods in my back. And also you've, in your old age, developed pretty tight contractures in your legs. Yeah. And so. Well, anyway, but it was fun while we could do it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. I think it's the difference between doing it with a program that is for people with disabilities and just doing a regular program. Because when I tried it, 
I had never heard of such a thing for people with disabilities. You know, I just went out to this farmland and I don't remember much about it, aside from the fact that it was something that my mother signed me up for before we found what would be the Fairfax Falcons program. Right. You know, because I wasn't driving at the time, and I guess she thought she could decide what I did with my weekends. (laughs) Um, That's what parents are for. I guess so. (laughs) I actually have some of the ribbons that I won during the times that I did EQuest. They had some horse shows, yeah. They had all the kids in horse shows and stuff. Oh, they participated in horse shows? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. wow. Yeah. I have a couple of ribbons from that. Yeah, it was just horse show for the kids that were with disabilities. It wasn't like against another organization or anything, but it was within house. But it was really nice. Oh, wow. They had them do different stuff, and then they had people judging how they did and yeah. handing out ribbons and it's fine. Another thing about that that was really fun was that our daughters, who are older than Mark, right. Mark has three older sisters, but two of his sisters, who were about seven and eight years older, got to volunteer at EQuest, grooming the horses and taking care of the horses and while Mark was participating in the program. Right. And they thought... One of them, I mean, Beth said that was a wonderful experience for her. She learned all about horses. Um, she was about 13 or 14 when she did that. And one story that I have about that is prior before eQuest, and when I was very little, I was deathly afraid of almost everything under the sun. I was afraid of dogs, cats, horses, and even Mickey Mouse. <laughs> you were just afraid of all kinds of animals. Animals, any animal. And, any and, and my cousin, Janet, she is a vet now. But when my family and I were in Michigan, when I was very little, I saw my cousin Janet's horse show. And it was there that I decided to get over my fear of horses. And I decided to actually pet my cousin Janet's horse. And that was actually one of the experiences that not only got my over my fear of horses, but actually got me over the fear of animals. If it makes you feel any better, when I was growing up, probably till I was about 10 years old, I was deathly afraid of dogs. And I didn't know why, but I'm told, because I'm too young to remember this, that I was born in D.C. And, you know, I live in Bethesda, Maryland now. But when my family and I lived in D.C., we moved when I was like four. At that time, before we moved to Maryland, we had a dog, which I don't remember. But I didn't have a wheelchair yet. So apparently I was crawling around on the floor like this dog was. And this dog would just beat the absolute tar right out of me. And that's why, oh, that's why no. we got rid of him. That's why we got rid of him. Oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah. So even, yeah. even the small dogs terrified me. Like, yeah. if I go to pet a dog, even to this day, it's a little reactionary where... Where if I go to pet a dog, 
if I get near their face, I'm like, you better not bite me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, after an experience like that, I'm yeah, terrifying. Yeah, and so there's that, and then I'm allergic to cats, so <laughs> they're not really an option. Yeah, and I am too. So Ryan is too. Yeah. Animal here in general, right? I grew into as an adult. I I developed allergies to any kind of pet dander. They either have fur or feathers. Riding horses was fun with Mark at camp, but it's something that I can't do on a regular basis because I don't have medication strong enough to uh, protect me from that. Right. I'd like to put in a little plug for the camp that Mark went to. It was mm-hmm. called Camp John Mark in Texas, and it was a relatively new camp when he went in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. There were 12 disability groups in Texas, different disabilities. I don't remember them all, but spina bifida and cerebral palsy and hemophiliac and diabetic and... Burn victims. Burn, oh yeah. So there are all these different disability groups and they all wanted to camp. And it so happened that there was a family who had a farm, had a son who died of cancer, and they donated a big portion of this farm as land for a camp. So the disability groups got together and they decided, what do we need in a camp for kids who have disabilities? Mm -hmm. And one of the things they came up with was paved paths and trails and sidewalks, you know, for wheelchairs so that they could get around easily. Another thing they came up with was a, a swimming pool that had sort of like a beach entry. So, you know, it's a shallow entry, not like you jump off into the three feet right. section right there, but, you know, just a, a sloping entry into the water. Mm-hmm. Another thing, they had to have a fishing pond. They had a big med shed, like a big building that was just devoted to where the doctors and nurses could be there to help if there's emergency, but also some kids just needed specialized care while they were there. And so they would go to the med shed. So anyway, everybody all pooled together all their ideas and then built this camp. It was really a wonderful, and and then Ron volunteered as a counselor there a number of years. And they generally like the parents to stay away. And just a second. And then each disability group got one week at the camp. So when you were there, it was just the spina bifida kids. And then the next week, it would be just the cerebral palsy kids. And then the next week, it would be just the diabetic kids. And the spina bifida week happened to be the second week of June, which also happens to be the week after my birthday. (laughs) So that was... Oh, really? That that became an issue when he aged out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it did. That's an event that kids look forward to all year long. One of the children's hospitals that serves the kids, they would send their doctors and nurses out to serve and they would pull in a lot of medical students to get some hands-on experiences. It was good for Mark because all year he would say, well, I've got to learn this independent living skill. He didn't use those terms, but (laughs) but you know what I mean, because my friends at camp can do this and I got to learn how to do it too. That was his motivation. I was sort of a rare case, one of the very few parents that was there, not dealing with Mark. I was called in to serve a cabin of boys a little older than Mark, but in that cabin were two brothers who were deaf, and I work in the deaf community, fluent in sign language, and so they needed a volunteer who could 
interface with these kids and help them to have a good camp experience. And so I got to hang out with the older boys and learn from them what their independent living skills were. And then I could bring that home. And anyways, a real education for me as well as a real motivation for Mark. I think Mm -hmm. one of the more touching scenes at that was when the kids aged out at what age? Um, 15. 15. Yeah. And they have a special ceremony on the last day. And one of the gals there said, this is my most favorite place on earth because this is the only place where my friends don't laugh at me. You know, that'll get to you. Uh, Definitely. Those that age out still can participate in in the fall. There's a weekend and that they recruit those as helpers and, and some even become counselors. It was a big part of our lives on the lives of disabled children all throughout the uh, North Texas area. It was a huge part of my life. The first couple of years that we moved uh, while we were here, Dad and I would fly back to Texas so that both of us can be at the camp and then area. A lot of my friends that I still keep in touch are from that camp. Nice. And that's where Mark had his first girlfriend, too. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> it was. It was. But uh, things have changed now. <laughs> the, 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 the Saturday night dance was a big deal. Yeah. But, I, I love how you, Mark just brushed that off. Things have changed. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> well, that is actually essentially right. One of the biggest events that the camp had, the Thursday night dance that the campers and the volunteers and everybody else had before the campers had to leave to go back to the various homes. Yeah, it was a, yeah it's a, for those that are not part of the, the community, the whole concept of a wheelchair dance is uh, <laughs> you gotta be there to experience yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to have those at the tournaments too, which was brought up, uh-huh. I think, by both Todd and Evan uh, at different points on the show. One of the other activities that Mark wrote about in what he sent me was another thing that I had done first in a way that I didn't know could be adapted. Bowling. Yeah. I've done it both ways. The way that they adapt it for people in wheelchairs is they do two things. They have this ramp that you push the ball down. Yeah. And then, can't remember what they call them, but... They have these things to prevent you from getting the gutter balls. They just raise them up. Yes. yes. What do they call them? Bumper guards. Bumper, Bumper guards. Bumper. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So did you play both ways or were you just cheating? Mostly it was with the ramp. And the Spina Bifida Association of National Capital Area still has a bowling party every year. Except last year. Except for last year. Right. <laughs> We weren't doing anything last year. Yes, because it's usually in March. Right. And so we had it all planned, but we had to cancel it because the March is when it all started. And normally we would do it in March this year, but we didn't even plan it this year. Right. Yeah, but it's usually a yearly thing. The bowling party in Texas was actually a fundraising event. Oh. That get people to donate, you know, for how many pins you hit or something like that. One of the big pluses of that event is one of the huge supporters of our program was the backup quarterback to Troy Aikman, 
at the Dallas Cowboys. His name was Jason Jason Garrett. Garrett. He would run a summer camp program of his own, football camp, and the proceeds for that would go to send the spina bifida kids to camp. And so during the bowling party, he would show up with the Cowboys. And And he is the same Jason Garrett who was head coach of the Dallas Cowboy for 10 years. Now he's no longer there. He's the offensive coordinator and... New York. New York, York. Yeah, he's he's, the Giants. Yeah. New Giants. But anyway, he's a great guy and a great <laughs> supporter of the Spina Bifida. I have a picture of me and Jason Garrett together at the Spina Bifida bowling party in Dallas. And so that was a huge thing, not just for me, but throughout the Spina Bifida community in the Dallas Forest area. And in North Texas in particular. You know, as people from Texas like to brag on Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it just so happens I was going to move on to why you guys moved here. Dad's job. So we should talk about that, too, because your job, which you touched on a little bit, your job is a chaplain for Gallaudet University. That's one of the sidebars. Yeah. My primary calling is I serve as a pastor of a deaf church, a Lutheran deaf church that serves the Washington CC metro community on both sides of the Potomac. And part of that calling is to also serve as uh, right now I'm senior chaplain at Gallaudet University and also a volunteer chaplain for deaf inmates in the Maryland Department of Corrections. And so this has been my life's career, my work, what I was doing in Texas when Mark was born. He grew up exposed to sign language all his life. In fact, when he was a very young child in the babbling stage, it was kind of fun because when he's around us hearing people, he would babble like most babies do. And then he was around with people who use sign language, whether they were deaf people or folks or students that come over for tutoring, he would babble in sign language. He grew up with it in the home. He can hold his own pretty well in a conversation. I have a bit of a story that it's kind of a funny one in a way. I was in the hospital for a So far, that's period. not funny, but go ahead. Well, well, yes. You want, you want like, us to tell us? Yeah. Mark was, had a bowel obstruction. Right. He was in the hospital. He had surgery and his insides were so swollen, they couldn't close him up. So they had to put him in an induced coma. Yeah. Oof. Yes, for a couple days. And then they were about to wake him up. And of course... We were wondering, are you still in there? You know, are you still there? You were very concerned. Yeah, I I was. So they wake him up, but he has a breathing tube down his throat. So there's no way he can talk. There's no way he can communicate, but his eyes are open. Okay, so he was awake. The first thing he did when he woke up, he looked at us and I was there and our daughter Beth was there. And he fingerspelled R-E-M-O-T-E, remote. He wanted the remote (laughs) for the TV. So I figured, okay, he's fine. And the best part of that is, Nate, is that when my mom and my sister saw me doing that, they were just roaring out laughing. And the doctors and the nurses, when they heard my mom and my sister were laughing about that, they came rushing to where I was, thinking that something bad had happened. And they did not have a clue whatsoever that I knew sign language. It was a very... Big sigh of relief moment. You were like, <laughs> he's back. You know, jump forward. They get into this later. He was part of a job training program 
called Project Search. And in the cohort, his group that he was with, Mark was their first client who was uh, disabled and a wheelchair user, but it was also their first attempt at serving a client who was deaf. Hard of hearing, actually. Hard of hearing, but she heavily relied on visual communication. And very often, Mark was able to assist with his sign language skills in that particular program. When I came in to the classes, one of the very first times I saw my friend Aya, Aya tried to communicate to the instructors and Aya can read lips, but she prefers using sign language. And a lot of the instructors, they didn't know sign language at a time. And so even though I was a student of Project Search, I knew that I could use my limited sign language abilities to try to communicate and interpret to what Aya was, or to what the instructors were saying to Aya. So one of the more interesting things, I think, having you guys on, well, it's something that Ron actually made me think of, which is, you know, when I was growing up, I knew that there were things specifically for people in wheelchairs, but I hadn't really thought about that pertaining to people with other disabilities. So Ron says he works with deaf and hearing impaired people in different aspects of life. Like, for instance, I wouldn't have known that there were things specifically for hearing impaired prisoners. There's precious little. It varies from state by state. State of Maryland, I think, is really ahead of the curve on that when they identify an inmate diagnosed with severe to profound hearing loss. They have one facility where they do provide support services for those who rely on sign language. They have one or two interpreters on the campus during business hours every week, assisting with educational programs, medical appointments, administrative issues, and the like. They provide assistive technology, whether it's the old teletype machine, TTY, for using the telephone or nowadays video phones. Most states don't even recognize there are, are deaf people in the institution. It's difficult enough to be deaf in the community. Sure. But for those who are incarcerated, as the guys in prison say, we're being punished twice, once because I committed a crime, but I'm punished again because I'm deaf. They don't have access to you know, the rehabilitator programs that not only improve them as individuals, but also could shorten their time in the institution. So they get to spend more time in prison than their hearing counterparts or some institutions. Not unusual that a, a deaf inmate would be disciplined for failing to respond to an oral command given behind his back. And so it's tough road to hoe. So a part of my work there as I don't go as an advocate, but I do go as a listening ear. And sometimes I'm able to convey to administration some of the issues that the guys on the inside are facing. Maryland is way ahead of the game. I think in the federal system, I get the impression that they actually deliberately separate deaf inmates so they're not in the same institution because there's this underlying fear that sign language is secret language that they can use to form some gang activities and do bad things. So it's just awareness and administration is difficult. And now 
in the days we're still dealing with the coronavirus. Volunteers are not allowed in any institutions. Visitors are not allowed, even family members. There, there's some video uh, visiting going on at some institutions, but I've been out of touch for a year now with the guys in the inside. Again, if you're deaf, it's even worse. So I'm grateful I get to be a small part of bringing some sunshine into a sometimes otherwise dark place. Well, like I said, you work with deaf people in different avenues. So I really could have picked any one of them, but sectioning off deaf people in prison sounded the most unusual to me. That's why I did that. But it's the hidden population that not even the deaf community is very aware of. Right. And you've never done this kind of work with, let's say, non-hearing impaired people. Well, <laughs> have you? I, don't know. Uh, I, I live in a hearing world. And so professionally, yeah, it's been in the in the context of deafness. It's the deaf people that got me going to prison. Uh, <laughs> uh, but while I'm in prison, I interact with everybody, officers, staff, and mm-hmm. uh, other hearing inmates as well. So whatever benefit I can be to anybody, I'm glad to serve. But if the deaf weren't there, I wouldn't be going. That's my fault because I didn't really know how to phrase the question. But what I really meant was in terms of being a pastor, have you always been one for just deaf people? That is correct. Okay. Well, my Georgian says no. I have, no, okay. I have <laughs> helped, two, two years. I have done some interim work helping out at hearing churches at a friend who went to go teach at the seminary. Their church was without a pastor for a couple of years, and they recruited me to be the interim there, and it was a really good experience. But even there, we brought the deaf ministry over, and that became part of that church's ministry as well. So yeah, I have served hearing churches. And even when I came here to Maryland, I told the deaf church, he says, I want one Sunday a month off so I can go visit a hearing church, as we call it, and do a little PR work. Because as I go visit other churches of our denomination in the area, they become aware of this very special ministry that they previously were not too familiar with. They sometimes send us some financial support, which is a good thing. So my deaf church says, Pastor, you need to get out there more. I can function. I can hold my own in a hearing church. But my reason for being here is the deaf ministry. I want to mention something that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning. But I found out this morning that today, March 1st, as we're doing this, is International Wheelchair Day. I randomly found that out, (laughs) and that means different things to different people, I'm sure. So I wanted to mention that before we start talking about one of our favorite subjects, the Fairfax Falcons. (laughs) All right, so coming from Texas over to Maryland, how did you guys find the team? It was through Joe Hill at the Spina Clinic at Children's Hospital. We came here in the fall of 2001. We went to the Spine for the clinic and we found that out to Bill Hill about the Fairfax Falcons. And then it was January of 2002 that I first joined with the Falcons. We got to give a shout out to Jill Hill because I think she has probably recruited more people for Falcons than anybody else. She regularly goes to the Spina Bifida Clinic at Children's Hospital. And one thing she does is she recruits for our Spina Bifida Association National Capital Area, but she 
always pushes the falcons and people so it's all these kids are going through you know with spina bifida and wheelchairs and so she is there to tell them about the falcons she did that in 2001 and i just like today it was i got in the mail two registration forms for spina bifida association national capital area for two people that she had just met in the spina bifida clinic at children's hospital this like a month ago so she's been doing it for at least 20 years or probably 30 years jill i mean not only has she been a really good recruiter for the team because her name keeps popping up and how people (laughs) (laughs) but her one of her sons used to be on it so yeah Derek, Derek was and i coached him too Um, (laughs) (laughs) so Another common theme, especially when I talk to coaches of the Falcons on this show, is the awareness that, at least when their kids first join the team, parents are very nervous about maybe how violent wheelchair basketball looks. (laughs) People ask me, what's wheelchair basketball like? And I said, it's, it's... Sort of a cross between uh, hockey and rugby. Hockey and rugby. <laughs> well, here's the thing, and I'm sure you've heard this because I've said it on the show before. But when I'm asked to describe wheelchair basketball, invariably, what I tell people is it's not supposed to be full contact, but we somehow make it full contact anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another point I think before Mark. No, this was actually when I was on the team. So this was way before Mark joined. There were athletes falling out of their wheelchairs so often that I once made the joke, which stuck, that you weren't a real member until you fell out of your chair. (laughs) That's true. Mark caught a tremendous picture. Yeah. I remember who he is falling (laughs) out of their chair. Just at the moment of impact of hitting the ground. Yep. Is he, he's got it. We should send it. Guess who's on it. Joel Poole. Yeah, Joel Poole has this oh, wide open mouth expression as he's watching this person fall out of the chair. Is yeah, that the picture I, that you posted when I had Joel on the show? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <I did. laughs> no, no, wheelchair basketball is not for the faint of heart. That was my original point was, you know, you have all these parents concerned about it, at, at least at first. And Mark... I mean, as tenacious as he is, he's not the biggest guy, not the most natural athlete. Yes. So now, when I was on the team as a player, I was mostly on defense. Yeah. Because for the life of me, I cannot shoot the ten foot basket, which is the regulation for wheelchair basketball anyway. No, that's fair. But this was going to be my original question, but we kind of <laughs> had some laughs along the way. I mean, were there concerns from Ron and Georgianne about you playing? Um, they oh, got I thought that. it was great. Oh, you did? Well, I remember smelling the burning rubber, and I thought, this is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had no concern. I, I don't know why I didn't have any concern, but I just felt like, you know, you need stuff like this. Yeah. Even though Mark is smaller, and but I, I was never worried about it. There were a couple of times we were playing, and I think that during this was Vitaly Richie. I remember Vitaly had the ball, and I remember 
racing across the court just to catch Vitaly. Both tears colliding with each mm-hmm. other. Yeah, that doesn't and- surprise me. Vitaly was not the most refined <laughs> player. In fact, and I'm not sure you guys are aware of this, but when Vitaly first joined the team, I think Eric recruited him. And basically his one instruction during practice scrimmages was to attack me because <laughs> because he was so unrefined he didn't know how to do anything else other than just be aggressive and i was the only one that could actually take it it was some cultural education for me i was not aware previously that there were actually wheelchairs designed specifically for the sport of basketball they're not chairs to use out on the track. Nope. Not chairs that you can use in the community. They're just like mini tanks. And uh, <laughs> uh, with, with uh, bumper guards in the front, so you can't get uh, hooked and spun by your opponent. A high seat and the mandatory uh, tippy wheel in the back. Cambered wheels. And the very, very wide cambered wheels. There was one time I was... Um, I was on a, a business trip and I had to fly through, uh, it was, I guess it was Midway Airport in Chicago. And there were a couple of young adult uh, women there, uh, both in chairs, obviously going to some sporting events. So between the two of them, they had five chairs. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> in the lobby of this airport. And I thought, there is a specialized chair just for the sport of basketball. And I told Mark that when the day he can make a consistent 10-foot basket. I got to find a way to get you stronger before you can do that. Yeah. Yeah, just you can't see Mark, but he's very small of stature. Mm-hmm. But the listeners can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I figured and, uh, he wasn't talking directly to me. But yeah, so, some, uh, some people some people who are, are going to hear this know Mark, some don't. So. Yeah. yeah. So he's, before he started growing facial hair and people would ask his age, they thought he was lying. Uh, <laughs> you know, he still can work on upper body strength. Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges Marx has, not only for sports, for the daily living, is uh, upper body control. He always has to be holding on to something to keep balance. So when he does, using both hands to use sign language, he'll very quickly topple over. He doesn't have much support from here, down. From the Not a lot of trunk control. Right. Right. Now, one of the chairs that we got was sort of prescribed for him, tried to remedy that, and it was a a form to back that would hold him in place. But that so immobilized him. You got to be able to lean over, pick things up off the floor. I hated it. We got rid of that very quickly. Mark is always holding on to something, or at least leaning on something to keep his upper balance. Something I just learned fairly recently we were working with another chair and discovered that a lot of folks in spina bifida when they're in order to control their chair they'll grab their wheel rims to what they call hand braking and they found out the hard way when mark tries that since he doesn't have the upper trunk control the moving wheels that he grabs onto just pull him forward and hmm. so he's one of these guys that has to really rely on my brakes in order to slow down because if he just grabs the wheels he just tumbles over and so even yet i'm still learning about the uniqueness of his physique everybody's spina bifida is is different yeah i don't know what just made me think of this but surprisingly one of the most common questions i get asked just about being in a wheelchair in general 
how do you turn? <laughs> and, well, no, I've been asked this question so often that I actually have a practical answer for it. All you have to do is think about pushing one wheel forward and pulling the other one back at the same time. Right. Right. That's why it's harder to do with one hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People like Robert Brown and whatever. You know. Oh, man, Robert. Well, man. I guess he had a special wheelchair in, in order to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had him on the show yet, but that's one of the things that I want to talk to him about is yeah. how yeah. he finally got a, a wheelchair that he could kind of manipulate like that. Oh, I just Go wanted ahead. to just add one little thing about since we brought up Vitaly. One of the events that we did when basketball was not in season mm -hmm. was uh, track and field. Yep. When I played for the Falcons, I did not have a personalized bike on my own. And so what I did was I ended up with Holly Richie's bike. Hand cycle. I'm, I'm doing hand cycle during the times that we were at track and field. We found out that with Holly, he was selling the bike because he was moving to Finland. And which I, he did, yes. Which he did, yes. <laughs> and I ended up buying that bike. And I have it with me. Uh, and I've used that bike when we go out to one of our local tracks here in Rockville. Yeah. Oh, they let the Before... hand bikes on the track? What? They let the hand yes. bikes on the track? I thought those hand bikes were too similar to actual bicycles as far as the wheels. I never expected the hand cycles to be let on tracks because I know bicycles are not. Nate, as I remember, you were often at those track and field practices, weren't you? Yeah, but I was never on the track much to begin with because track was not my expertise. Field events were my expertise. So I could teach, depending on people's age, I could teach things like softball and like club for the younger kids and then shot put and discus for the older kids. The one, of course, that I <laughs> that Todd and I talked about extensively that I really couldn't coach very well was javelin. Todd thought that I actually knew how to throw it, and the truth is I never did. I might have signed up a couple times at regional meets for javelin, but nobody ever taught me how to do it. Because throwing real javelins was, for safety reasons, banned in the state of Virginia. So, really? Yep. <laughs> wow. Did we not make that clear when we were talking about I it? I was <laughs> not clear on that. I didn't even know. This I, rule I was made long before you came around. So <laughs> the only thing I remember about a hand cycle is the one time I really got to try one was not on a track. It was after a basketball practice of some sort that we were doing. I forget who brought them out, but I didn't see the hand cycles much. Would have been nice to have one, I guess, but I don't really live in an area where it could have been very useful. I just never looked into having one. We have to go someplace to use it. Yeah. Whether it's at a local school track. And the, the hand cycle that Mark has is not a low-profile, thin-tired racing kind of bikes, but it's... Just a, one like an old folks bike has got wide balloon tires, so it's not going to do any damage to the track. But we don't set it out and let's cruise the neighborhood because we live on a hill. Either we go to the track or NRH, NRH National Rehabilitation Hospital, 
would have one evening a week where they would uh, bring out bikes to the veterans' home right across Armed the street. Armed Forces Retirement Home. So we would just go out, sign up for that, and just cruise around and do a couple miles. That's not available to us at the moment, so we go to a track and get our exercise. So Mark pushes the wheels, and his parents kind of trot along behind, getting their exercise. Yeah. <laughs> Walk. I, um, well, I, I didn't think I had to include that you two can walk, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are not too far ahead of us, but we're going to be in chairs, too, I'm sure. <laughs> Mark will come to visit us, I'm sure. And that's when you can be on the podcast for a different reason. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things that Mark has done in his later years is volunteer at a nursing home. Yeah. And it's interesting that as a young person in a chair, he becomes a role model for these Older folks who are new chairs users and yeah. uh, adjusting to them and not only physically but emotionally coping. Uh, Mark is a great encouragement to them. In yeah, that. it's been a blessing to both me and the residents of the nursing home that I volunteer at. And going back to what Dad did for the deaf community, one of the things that brought me into the nursing home that I volunteer is that there is a deaf resident there. And when I actually got into the nursing home to actually volunteer there uh, before the pandemic, I was able to communicate with her in sign language. And it was a great thing for not just me and not just her, but the deaf, the uh, residents, and especially the staff of the nursing home enjoyed me doing that as well. Because there was one other person that I knew of who was working at the nursing home mm-hmm. that knew sign language, but that person left. And so when she left, it fell upon me to go to the resident and actually check up on her and see how she's doing, how well, she's been he doing. It didn't fall upon you. No, but her daughter came to visit her regularly. Her well, daughter could sign. Other than her daughter. But Your story just fell sing. right apart, Mark. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, Mark, Mark has always been a big part of her life. Yeah. Yes, true. yes, that's yes, true. Yes. That is so, true. Yeah. So you've already talked about the fact that when Mark kind of aged out of the Fairfax Falcons team, Mark, you stayed to sort of be a photographer for them. Correct. And the reason for that is actually goes a little bit prior before volunteering there. There is a photography program. Well, there's an organization called Potomac Community Resources, and they have different classes for people with disabilities to take. And one of the classes available is called Fabulous Photographers. And I have been involved in that for not quite, but almost essentially the beginning of 
Since joining the team? Class. Oh, okay. Yeah, he learned some things in the program, so he had got the cameras and was able to. There's a whole lot more to the Falcons than just playing basketball. Oh, yeah. It's there you make friends and stay friends, and uh, it's as much for the social experience as it is for the athletic. And for Mark to say, all right, I'm, I'm out of that program to do something else. Well, Mark does not have the physical strength to go on to, you know, adult level basketball, but Falcons being such an important part of his life, he, he went to the coaches and said, can I volunteer? And so he, they said, yes, you can. Uh, they gave him two tasks. One is be the photographer for the team, but also he takes care of some, one of the ad, important administrative tasks and that takes, that's taking attendance. And if need be, I'm able to help out with the youngest and beginning players of the Falcons. Yeah, you volunteer to assist with the, the, the very young players. Yeah. You know, that's one uh, thing Dave just, mentioned. You know, yeah. Balls. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Falcons continues to be an important part of his life, even though he doesn't get to play in the tournaments but he's able to be there and be of service to the community. When we first came here, the Falcons were actually the first disability organization in this area that I had joined up. And it's been the longest time I've joined. The disability sports program. As I understand it, this might've been after I left the team, not sure, but your cousin is on the team now? My nephew. Your nephew. Mom and I actually helped recruit my nephew, Caleb, to be on the program. And he's on the, uh, your time it was known as the B team, and now it's known as the prep team. And it's been a wonderful experience for not just him, but for the kids who are involved with the Falcons now. And my brother-in-law, Steve, he is actually one of the coaches. I didn't know that either. (laughs) So yeah, he coaches the prep team. Yeah, Caleb's 10 now. So I think he's been going about three or four years since he's about seven. Anyway, seven, eight, nine, 10. Yeah, so that was way after I left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's getting pretty good too, Yeah. yeah. We're all excited. We just love watching. So I always try to end these shows in sort of the same manner in terms of asking a specific question. I can ask two questions today. So what I would ask of Mark, since this podcast is called We're the Inspiration, Mm -hmm. whether it's funny or not, you give me a story about you being called an inspiration. This was doing the uh, NIH pin cycling events. And one of the pin cycling that they did was a, a fundraiser called the Super H. And it's a run, walk, and pin cycling event. And it was a 5K race. So I was going as fast as I could, going uphill and downhill at times. And there was this guy that was behind me saying that I was essentially setting the pace for him. Mark has a license plate on the back of his 
He had yeah. a that says Mark. Yeah. And so this guy was following Mark. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's got Maryland license plates. The hand cycle he has does not have a high gear ratio. And so it's just like a three-speed bike. I've tried to gear it down as much as the mechanics will allow. I had a bike shop get involved with this. But climbing hills is, in the oh. lowest gears, is, is and, a real chore. And challenge. And because he sits high in the bike, Mark is not real eager to go fast when he could. And so going downhill, he's breaking his way down just so he doesn't go too fast. And so even then, he could still be a pace setter for whoever <laughs> was behind him. I'm a bit. That's my inspiration story. Well, I've got one that sticks in my mind. Now, I remember when you were in Capernaum, mm. and there was a, Capernaum is a Young Life, which is a Christian group for teenagers who have disabilities. Mm-hmm. Everybody was eating and everything, sort of a meal time, and everybody was going through a line, and I think Mark had his bottle of boost. The mother of one of the other students with disabilities came up to me, and she just said, I was just talking to Mark and I asked Mark, how are you, Mark? And he said, couldn't be better. Well, at Capernaum, Mark is one of the few people that's in a wheelchair. And she knew that Mark has real difficulty speeding. And she was just real impressed by couldn't be better. But here he was in a wheelchair, not able to eat what everybody else was eating. She was really touched by that. Well, one of the things that I realized when your mother was telling that story was I really don't think I've ever seen you in a bad mood, which is not something you can say <laughs> about me, I'm sure. <laughs> Believe me, Nate, I've had tough, tough times, but I honestly try to uh, look in the bright side of things as much as possible. He does, and he's easy to live with because of it. <laughs> One time he was facing some upcoming surgeries. They were scheduled surgeries. Mm-hmm. They weren't emergencies, but yeah. they, were, they were coming up. You, we were anticipating your surgery for scoliosis, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh, yeah. We were talking about it in the family with some reasonable anxiety and trepidation. And Mark chipped in. He says, but God still has a plan for my life. And he says, okay, you're right. Things are infective. This is just one chapter in the story. As a family, dealing with our new normal, uh, God has brought into our lives people that we would never have met otherwise. And people who are a real inspiration to us. And Nate, you're one of them. And <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. Without these wheelchairs, our paths never would have crossed. And nothing else that makes life worth it. And one of my goals is to be that kind of support for somebody else who's trying to venture out on this interesting pilgrimage that we're all on. That's an interesting segue into the last question I have, which is for Georgiana and Ron. Ron can probably answer this in a couple different ways, but here goes. I like to ask the people that don't have disabilities that come on the show, what is a misconception that you had about people with disabilities before you were directly involved with them? As adults, Georgianne and I have in our professional life worked with people with disabilities and with families, children with disabilities, long before Mark became part of our family. We really didn't know 
the package he was delivered in until the day he was delivered. And even then we were still pretty much in the dark, but it very quickly became evident. And I recall, and Georgian may remember too, is that she was still recovering from the C-section and I was chasing the ambulance down to the Children's Hospital in Dallas and came back to visit. And I said, well, guess what? It's our turn. And the parents that had gone ahead of us chronologically, walked the walk ahead of us, were enormously supportive for me, particularly in our venture. So we knew that we had a lot to learn. It took me two, three weeks maybe to learn how to say Milo Meningocele and to just make adjustments in the way I think and the way I live that can help navigate us and Mark through the life that's before us. For me, I can't say that I had a whole lot of misconceptions because at this point in my life, I knew that I didn't know. In my younger years, I was a college student, really when my first exposure to deaf people. I did not handle it well. I felt like I had landed on the wrong planet and I knew my own inability to communicate. Programs that would involve students going to volunteer at a local a mental hospital, for example, I made tracks out of that as fast as I could because mentally and emotionally, it was too different than my own worldview, my own life experience. At the time, I was not wise enough, old enough, mature enough to be able to handle it or even to be curious about it. But I guess we kind of treaded into this whole world of disabilities little by little, step by step, uh, mentored by those who have gone before us. And so when this package was delivered to us by the name of Mark Friedrich, I knew I had a whole lot to learn. I had I shelved a lot of what I thought I knew and I uh, was ready to learn and get involved with other families who have been on this road a lot longer than we have and learn all I can from them. So I was in college, I must've been, I was, just after graduate school, I had to take a couple more classes to get certified in the state of Michigan to teach special ed classes. And one of the classes that I took was a class in general disabilities and how they happen, particularly based around birth. And what are genetic disabilities, disabilities that happen, why you're in utero, disabilities that happen at birth, this whole thing which would include things like, of course, spina bifida, but cerebral palsy, because that's a disability that happens at birth because they don't get enough oxygen or Down syndrome, you're born with around chromosomes, you know, the whole shoot and match of all these different things. And that was what the course was. Here I was single, unmarried, the whole thing. I was like 22. And I remember praying about that at the end of the class. And I said, Lord, if you ever want to give me a with disability, I need three normal kids to go along with it just so we'll have a normal family. I didn't know this story. You didn't know that story. <laughs> I thought I told you that. So what happens in my life? I have three daughters and then I get Mark. So that's number one in terms of preparing me for it. Number two is that right after Mark was born, I was just barely home from the hospital. We had the diagnosis. He's already had two or three surgeries. Oh. I mean, you know, it was a rough beginning right. for his life. Oh. He had to have his back clothes. He had to have a shunt. First shunt failed. Second shunt failed. It was a rough start. And a friend came to me and she said, how are you doing with a new normal? 
what Mark is, is normal. It's a new normal, it's a different normal, but somehow that normal, this is normal for us. You know, this normal, it's fine, it's normal, it's good. And that's stuck in my head and that really, really helped. And then the third thing that's I think has been really important for me in raising Mark is that I realized that my goal for my three daughters and Mark is exactly the same and that they want them to grow, be the people God intended them to be, to use whatever gifts God has given them, develop them. Some people have more, some people have less, but the point is, it's sort of like the parable of the talents in the Bible, you'd use the gifts you got, and if you do that, you could live the live good life. There hasn't been a whole lot of angst in this, because it was normal. I had prayed for it. I didn't realize I'd prayed for it, but this is what happened. And so I haven't had, I don't think, a lot of angst about why us or of course, then what happens in our family is Mark isn't the only one born with a disability. No. Caleb was born with spina bifida, and we have another granddaughter who was born with a very severe genetic disorder. So, okay, here we are. Same thing goes for all of them. So, I had one friend of mine. We were, we were classmates all through college, seminary, same age as our second daughter. He contracted uh, severe encephalitis at like one week old. The, the effect was devastating. When Mark was born, he was the first person I called, even before I called my own family and my, my parents. I got a postcard from him one day. This is before we had email and internet. It hadn't been invented yet. Sent me a postcard with just a little note. He says, don't put yourself in the place where you expect that one day all this stuff is going to be behind you and life is going to plateau and things will be fine. It's not going to happen. Because when one crisis is done, there's going to be another one waiting for you right around the corner. I read that and it says, I'm reading some very wise words here. A good outlook for life that you take the day that's given you you don't worry about tomorrow and tomorrow gets here because you have no way to know what tomorrow brings. As Mark says, when the bad stuff hits, you don't see it at the time, but afterward you can look back and says, you know, something good came out of this that we wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And I can honestly say, Nate, that I have been truly and honestly blessed <laughs> with good parents. <laughs> well, I can vouch for that, but Mark... Basically, if you didn't have a disability, I wouldn't necessarily even know your parents. We wouldn't be here. So I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't know Dave. I wouldn't know anybody. Exactly. I wouldn't even, so I wouldn't know even about the Balkans as well. <laughs> right. But here's my point. This show, even though your parents are here, this show is more than anything else about you. So I want to give you the last word. One of the things that I've honestly been blessed with with everything that's been going on with me, like medical-wise, hospitalization-wise, I've had ups and downs all through my life. And yet, I have, through all of it, I have been truly and honestly blessed with 
the people and the places that I have made and been at and otherwise if I did not have this disability, who knows what could have happened. I know that a lot of people might not see it this way, but I guess a lot in a way, my Hispanic bifida is sort of a blessing in disguise because you never know what's gonna happen and how things may progress. So if you don't know my friend Mark, you might have noticed he has unusual speech patterns. And I'm reminded of the words that both his parents used on the podcast, new normal. That might be new to some, but for Mark and some others with disabilities, it's just normal. I want to thank Mark and his parents for being the inspiration for this week's show, and thank you for listening. Remember, the links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Discord server are going to be in the description when I put the show up. And until next week, this is Nate Lurie saying, you don't always have to do a lot to inspire others.